This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle of the Action Network in Rotoviz. Welcome to the October 12th, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Kiffin, an owner of Rotoviz, a PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, and one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. Uh, getting, getting down here towards the end of the season. We got two races left in this round of the playoffs, three in the next round, and then one final race at Homestead. So six races to go. But uh, I think all six races are going to be awesome races. So I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, this one, uh, I mean, restrictor plate racing in general, I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, and then Talladega is... Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. It's a great race on its own. So a, a great race we have coming up. Um, it's the second race, the second round of the playoffs. Before we preview Talladega, let's talk about last week's race. Uh, which had a lot of major playoff and DFS drama. Kevin Harvick dominated two-thirds of the race before a loose wheel derailed his race-winning hopes, uh, allowing Arc Almarola to dominate the latter portion of the race. Uh, however, a late race caution saw Almarola pit for four tires, while five drivers either took two tires or no tires. So on the ensuing restart, man, Nick, this is long, uh, Almarola and Kozlowski sparked a multi-car pileup and on the final restart, Chase Elliott on old tires fought off Denny Hamlin on two new tires to take the win. <laughs> we really need to edit this uh, and book his place in the third round of the playoffs. Uh, Nick, the race drama also led to a bunch of DFS drama. You took second place in the $100,000 GPP for uh, $7,500. Talk about your lineup and the late race sweat and all the on-track action. Yeah, that was uh, quite the race. It was, it, was, I mean, it was so boring for the first two-thirds of the race with Harvick just dominating. Not, it was kind of hard to pass on track. Tires did matter, um, but it was still pretty difficult to pass, which was a bit interesting. But uh, then when Ta- Harvick had that loose wheel, Almarola really uh, started to shine. He and Boyer were kind of battling up front to teammates to Kevin Harvick, of course. So Stuart Haas Racing had a really strong day. Kurt Busch was also up in the mix there. So Stuart Haas Racing, just fantastic cars. Um, But then, you know, things happened. Clint Boyer uh, ended up having problems. He crashed and brought out a caution. I think it was under 10 laps to go. 
Almirola pitted, like we said, because tires did matter, but track position also mattered. Chase Elliott stayed out, no tires. Denny Hamlin took two tires, and oh man, that that was crazy. Because at that point, I was actually winning the GPP. Um, I was tied for first for fifteen thousand dollars, I think it was. Um, but uh, after that last restart, I did not have Chase Elliott in my lineup. He picked up a few extra Dominator points, so that. Uh, the, the lineup that was in third behind the first two of us that were tied for first and second uh, leapfrogged us. So put me from first to tied second, cost me uh, $7,500. But I still walked away with $7,500, so definitely a fun sweat. My lineup was, was pretty much on the money with uh, really the whole slate. I, I felt like I was on the money except a couple calls. Kyle Larson was after practice, we thought he was the car to beat. He was tops in everything in practice, uh, steep track racing, you know, is he's great at. So uh, there was no reason to think Kyle Larson would have a stinker, but he had a stinker. Chase Elliott, I was a little underweight on, actually pretty significantly underweight on, so I missed that there. Uh, but those are really the only two kind of, I guess, major calls that I, that I missed. Uh, maybe along with Martin Truex Jr., I wrote him up as a GPP play. But I, even though I was overweight on him in the field, I only had about uh, 25% Truex. So it wasn't like I went crazy on Truex, but those were maybe the only three bad calls I made. The rest were really good. My winning lineup had four drivers that I green tagged on the road of his live show. Uh, so Daniel Suarez, Ricky Stenhouse Jr. Um, we had Kevin Harvick, of course, who dominated the race. And then also Eric Jones, who started 16th and, and worked his way up into a fourth place finish there at the end. So four of the six drivers at green tag. The other two drivers were my low-owned, two of my three low-owned GPP plays of the week. Um, so the Paul Menard play of the week, as people like to call it, uh, referencing a, a restrictor plate race last year where I said Paul Menard was going to be low-owned and, and crush, and of course he did. So uh, the two, Paul Menard, two of the three Paul Menard picks of the week were Eric Almarola, who, of course, we talked about dominated a portion of that race there at the end before you know, problems, but he still finished high enough to end up in the winning lineup with all those dominator points. And then also Austin Dillon, who started 14th, finished in the seventh position. Great day for Austin Dillon. He stayed on the lead lap, picked up a couple of positions on speed. And then when that carnage happened at the end, he was able to avoid uh, the carnage and, and he was really low owned. So those two drivers, along with Denny Hamlin, were my uh, Menard picks of the week. And Denny Hamlin ended up finishing second. So also a great pick there. All three of my low owned GPP plays of the week finished with over six and a half X value on DraftKings. So yeah, I feel like I, I really nailed the slate. Uh, also, I, I guess Jimmy Johnson, but that doesn't really count. He broke before the race even started. Um, so it wasn't really a bad call as much as a, a very unlucky call with Jimmy Johnson, but uh, by and large, really, really accurate on the slate this past weekend. So very happy with that. And uh, winning lineup was, was all green, green tags and uh, green yellow tags with the, the Menard picks of the week. Okay, well, going from a race where you predicted everything to a race where it's uh, basically impossible to predict anything, uh, let's talk about Talladega. This weekend, 500 miles at the 2.66-mile Super Speedway. Uh, for the people listening who might be new to the show, new to restrictor plate racing, uh, can you talk about it uh, and how it impacts overall DFS strategy? Yeah, so restrictor plate racing, um, real quick synopsis, basically NASCAR uses what's called a restrictor plate to limit the airflow into the engine that limits horsepower. Uh, so the cars all go the same top speed. And when they all go on the same top speed, they all run in a big pack. And uh, the front drivers of that pack are pushing the air out of the way. So right, they're facing a lot more air resistance and they're blowing a big hole in that air and the cars behind them 
uh, get to draft up to them. So essentially there's less air pressure behind the front set of cars. And the further back in the pack you go, the more of a draft you get. So you just run in a big pack. It's really easy to pass. Uh, and sometimes when you're running a big pack and one car makes contact with another car, or maybe one car blows a tire, uh, all mayhem, all hell can break loose and get multi-car pileups. So between the just the passing that we get from the fact that everybody's running a big pack, it's really easy to, to drop back 15 positions in one lap, and it's easy to gain five or 10 spots in one lap uh, just because everybody's going the same speed in the draft. Uh, and then also the big one, we get a lot of randomness. So uh, we really, really want to play ownership percentages. Uh, and then also, of course, um, because – there's uh, so much carnage, so much mayhem. It allows the drivers who avoid it, especially near starting near the back, uh, who avoid all the carnage and all the mayhem and maybe make a few passes, uh, to pick up a lot of place differential points and a lot of finishing position points. So these are the drivers we tend to want in our lineups in DFS. Now, of course, everybody knows that, so we're going to have to figure out how much of each of these drivers we want in our lineups. Uh, and so that's kind of where the fun lies in restrictor plate racing DFS these days. Okay, uh, because of the draft and then the big wrecks, uh, place, to, place differential is obviously important. Uh, how much does starting position really matter at plate races? So how frequently can you get away with starting drivers inside the top 10 or inside the top 20? Yeah, so because you know place differential is king, we, we talk about, usually I give some rules of thumb, like don't start X number of drivers inside the top 20 or inside the top three or whatever. So we can generally kind of follow these guidelines. And so if we, if we break it down into like starting position groups of five, uh, we can go back the last eight non-Daytona 500 restrictor plate races and kind of get an idea of what drivers end up in the winning lineup. And the reason I'm not pulling in Daytona 500 uh, stats is because uh, with, the, with the Daytona 500, you have a different qualifying format. So you get a lot of really good cars that end up way in the back. At all the other races, you have your standard qualifying. So, um, you know, your bad cars still end up in the back, and that definitely changes how the optimal lineup is, is constructed from the other three restrictor plate races each year versus Daytona. So just looking at since 2016, there have been eight restrictor plate races that were not the Daytona 500. And the reason I'm going since 2016 is a couple reasons. One, they trimmed the field to 40 cars. So you're not worried about cars starting 41st, 2nd, or 43rd, kind of skewing the results. Two... Um, that has also been since uh, NASCAR has had a common rules package, so um, a more consistent rules package, I should say. So um, those eight races give us a really nice insight as to the variance in the winning lineups. So just looking at the winning lineups, I'm actually going to break that down into starting groups of four instead. Uh, the number of drivers that have started first through fourth in the winning lineup has been one. Uh, there's been one driver in these eight races that started first through fourth. Uh, that driver started third. It was Brad Keselowski in the Daytona summer race. Um, no, sorry, that was uh, Joey Logano in the, the Talladega race, the fall Talladega race. So this one, October Talladega race. Joey Logano started third. He led 59 laps and finished fourth. So uh, he actually had negative place differential, but because he did lead 59 laps, he did end up in the winning lineup. So, um, you know, starting in the top four, only one driver in those eight races Starting, uh, so let's see, fifth through 12th. So if you go the next eight positions, so I'm kind of combining the next two groups of four together, there have been nine drivers. So essentially four and a half per group. Uh, so nine drivers starting, you know, fifth through 12th have ended up in the winning lineup. 
Then you get to uh, 13th through 20th, and it actually drops down. You've only had five drivers. So if you group the eight drivers starting, uh, like I said, fifth through 12th, and then the eighth drivers starting, eight drivers starting 13 through 20, you have nine in the front set and only five in the back set. And I think that's because, as we'll talk about dominators, you do tend to get a few more dominators from the group starting fifth to 12th than you get starting 13th to 20th. And starting 13th to 20th is still pretty far forward. So all told, uh, only 13%, so let's, let's kind of scale everything up to 600% ownership. Um, starting first through fourth, only 13% should be ballpark, uh, your optimal lineup starting first through fourth, 13% ownership. So if you want to spread it out among drivers one through four, maybe that's an average of three something percent ownership per driver. Now, it's going to be a little different because first is different from fourth, et cetera. But uh, average of 13% out of the 600% ownership. Starting in that next group, the next eight that I'm going to group together, 113% ownership. And then the following eight after that, the 13 through 20, only 63% ownership. So you look at that 113% versus that 63%, definitely a big change there from 5 to 12 versus 13 through 20. Now, of course, it's going to come down to who we think will be the dominators. And these are just past statistics. It'll be different for this race. Maybe there'll be better drivers that start in that 13 through 20 range. They're more likely to dominate for whatever reason. Maybe not. So these are just historic data, um, but we can kind of adjust off of this historic data for drivers starting inside the top 20 based off of where the current drivers are starting and how they're expected to perform. So just some general guidelines uh, out of the eight races. Once again, to recap, only one driver starting in the top four, uh, nine drivers in the eight races uh, starting fifth through 12. So more than one per race. And then only five drivers starting 13 through 20 in the eight races. So less than one per race. Uh, starting 13th through 20th. Okay, what about the drivers starting 30th or worse, or even uh, 35th or worse? Yeah, so you would think, of course, with with place differential being king, that that these drivers starting 30th and worse are absolutely the drivers we want. Uh, and because these really slow backmarker cars especially start 35th and worse, that's not quite the case. Um, certainly, it's safer and you're more likely to pick up points with these drivers than you are with drivers starting in that 13 through 20 range. But uh, it's really not as, as safe as it, as it seems like it should be starting drivers 35th and worse. So again, I'm actually going to break them down into groups of four. But if we look at the back four, so 40th, 39th, 38th, and 37th, they've ended up in the winning lineup only four times out of these eight races. So in the optimal lineup, only four times, so only about 50% of the time. So if you look at uh, all of the ownership percentage added up, you should have about 50% ownership of these drivers starting total starting, uh, you know, 36, 37 through 40th. So, um, you know, you take 50% and divide it by four, that's around 12 and a half percent per driver. Uh, and we'll make some, some adjustments on that a little bit uh, when we talk about game theory optimal and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, definitely not a high percentage favoring these drivers way back there in the back because they're back markers. They're so slow. They hang out in the back of the pack. They don't gain positions even on speed in the draft. They're not passing people. They're literally just finishing at the tail end of the pack uh, of the pack that finishes. And even sometimes these drivers won't finish. They'll have problems. They'll go multiple laps down. They'll get in the wrecks as well. So all total, you only want about 50% of these back four drivers. If we take uh, you know, 28 through 36, sorry, 29 through 36, 
so instead of you know 30 through 35, let's take 29 through 36. That's where a good bulk of the, the winning lineup percentage comes. And it's actually a little further on that field. So if you take um, 29 through 32, 10 drivers have ended up in the winning lineup in eight races. If you take 33 through 36, only five, so less than one per race. So really the bulk of it comes in that 29 to 32 range. That's where of all of these groupings of four, the highest number overall is in that 29 to 32 range. So um, don't necessarily just start cramming drivers 30th or worse uh, just because they're starting 30th or worse. There's a reason they're starting 30th or worse, and that's because they're back market cars. That's not to say they can't end up in the winning lineup. Obviously, like I said, they're more likely to end up in the winning lineup than drivers starting you know, 13th through 20th. You think about it, there was five drivers starting 13th through 20th in eight positions that ended up winning the lineup. And there were five drivers just in those four spots from, uh, from 33rd through 36th. So, uh, you know, basically twice as much hit rate as, as a, a single driver starting anywhere from 13th through 20th. But, but still, not as good a hit rate as drivers starting 29th through 32. Okay. Uh, because of the draft and also because uh, there are only 188 laps, dominators aren't as important as they usually are. Uh, how many dominators should we be looking at or how much do dominators matter at these kinds of restrictor plate races? Yeah. So, you know, we, we talk about dif place differential, we focus on place differential, but dominators cannot be completely ignored. We did talk about Joey Logano ending up in the winning lineup when he started third and the bulk of these drivers that are starting much further forward end up in the winning lineup because they do accrue some dominator points. So uh, if we go back through, through race history and uh, look at drivers that scored 10 or more dominator points, we see that there's been seven of them in these eight races. Uh, so um, Brad Keselowski started fifth and won the race. He led 115 laps in the 2016 summer Daytona race. Uh, then you have, so he was kind of really the, the guy who was standing out 115 laps. Then you have a bunch of drivers that led anywhere between, uh, you know, 10 and 18%. So those are the other six drivers. Uh, all of these drivers started 16th or better uh, in their starting positions, you know, 9, 3, 16, 10, 7, and 11. Uh, so it wasn't these drivers starting first or second. Uh, it wasn't, you know, uh, necessarily those guys on the front row, but it was drivers starting further forward. And it was names that you pretty typically expect. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we, we see about one dominator per race on average end up in the winning lineup. Um, that's not completely a guarantee. Uh, if we extend it to nine dominator points, then you can also add in Martin Truex Jr. Uh, so then we'd have eight dominators in eight races. Truex started 13th, finished second that race, led 20 laps and also picked up eight fastest laps. Uh, the laps led are going to be a little more predictable than the fastest lap. The fastest laps are largely going to be variable, uh, but we can predict laps led a little bit. And like I said, it does tend to come from a handful of drivers. So uh, when you're looking at dominators, you definitely want to be selective with your dominators. Okay. And what do you look for in a dominator that might end up in a winning lineup? Yeah. So um, like I said, it, it very often is those same drivers. Uh, so we see Brad Keselowski on this list twice. We see Joey Logano on this list three times. Uh, but then there's also a handful of other, other drivers, Kyle Busch, Martin Truex Jr., a uh, couple Chevys. We've seen Alex Bowman dominate in the past. We've seen uh, Chase Elliott dominate restrictor plate races in the past. Now, that doesn't mean they'll end up in the winning lineup. These are the drivers that typically 
end up dominating restrictor plate races. So, uh, you know, if you want to, if you really want to look at, at just like drivers that are uh, very consistent at dominating races, you'll see also Denny Hamlin will pop up a lot. Um, but really, it, it tends to, as Ricky Stenhouse Jr., it tends to be the same group of drivers that dominates. Now, of course, that's not a guarantee. Sometimes you can get somebody like Casey Kane, who uh, led 17 laps at the, the, the Daytona race this year, not the 500, but the, the second Daytona race this year. Uh, or you might get somebody like a Clint Boyer uh, or, or, or Ryan Blaney. Ryan Blaney is actually a pretty, pretty good pick to dominate again because the Fords have been so strong this year and recently in the past couple of years at restricted plate races. So you're typically looking at the Fords, um, especially the Penske Fords. You're occasionally looking at some of the Chevys, your Chase Elliott's, Alex Bowman. Uh, William Byron dominated a little bit earlier this year at one of the races. He led 14 laps at Talladega. Uh, but, uh, and then some of the Toyotas, typically Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch, maybe Martin Truex Jr. But by and large, you're really looking at the Fords, especially the Penske's, and then a handful of other drivers within the Chevy and Toyota camps. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about the playoffs. First, though, I should remind everyone that you can get a special discount to a NASCAR pass for $30 through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotaviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content and your subscription supports the pod. Okay, let's talk about the playoffs. Uh, as we mentioned, Chase Elliott is locked into the third round of the playoffs by virtue of his win at Dover. Give a rundown of the rest of the playoff standings. Yeah, so real quick, we got Kevin Harvick in second, 68 points ahead of the cut line there. Now the cut line is separating eighth and ninth place, of course, because we're going to have eight drivers move on after this round of the playoffs. So Kevin Harvick, 68 up, Kyle Busch, 63 up. Then you got a bit of a drop down to Martin Truex Jr. He's only 36 up because he was involved in that last wreck there at Dover. So he's only 36 points to the good. Logano, 31 points to the good. Kurt Busch, 21. And Brad Kozlowski, 21 points to the good. Ryan Blaney, 10 to the good. And then on the bad side, you have Eric Almarola and Clint Boyer, both 10 behind Ryan Blaney for that last spot. Kyle Larson, 12 behind Blaney for that last spot. And then Alex Bowman also suffered problems in that uh, last Dover crash there. 34 points behind as the 12th out of the 12 remaining playoff drivers. Okay. Uh, it seems like there are a few tiers of drivers in the playoff standings. So uh, let's talk about them. First, what is Chase Elliott's goal on Sunday, and how does that impact any DFS strategy around him? Well, so with, with Elliott being locked in, uh, his mission is to get more playoff points because those playoff points carry through to the next round. So even though the regular points reset, uh, the playoff points carry through. And the way you get playoff points is by winning a stage or by winning the race. So uh, Chase Elliott is going to go for stage wins. He's going to go for the race win. Uh, as far as DFS, that means he's going to be try to be running up front the whole race if possible. Uh, it doesn't matter if he wrecks. He's already locked into the next round. So uh, he's a bit of a boom bust driver. Uh, obviously, if it, it'll be interesting to see where he qualifies. If he qualifies in the front row, I actually feel pretty like. I wouldn't say I feel good about using him, but if he qualifies in the first maybe two or three rows, I feel pretty good about using him um, overall just because he's going to want to get out front uh, and, and win that stage, win that first stage, win that second stage. So I actually feel pretty decent about Chase Elliott. He starts near the front. He kind of goes mid-pack. He's going to try to race his way forward. Uh, he could be pretty aggressive, especially uh, towards the end of the race uh, for those five playoff points to win the race. So 
then I feel a little less safe about him if he's starting maybe outside those first three or four rows. Um, so Chase Elliott, boomer bust type driver this weekend. Okay. And then after him, we have Harvick and Kyle Busch. Uh, they both are more than a full race ahead of the cutoff. So how do you expect those two to perform at Talladega? Yeah, so both, uh, you can get a maximum of 60 points in a race, uh, 10 stage points for the first two stages each. So that's 20 and then 40 for winning the race. So these guys are, are essentially over a full race ahead of Eric Almirola and Clint Boyer, et cetera. So they're just looking to kind of stay there. And the best way to do that, ride around in the back, avoid the big ones, and then maybe try to push forward towards the end of the race. So I expect these guys to ride around the back. Uh, they actually kind of become safer plays in a way because, uh, you know, they are expected to drop towards the rear, um, stay out of trouble. If they, if they get in trouble, that's where they open the door up for all these other drivers to get forward. So uh, I actually think these guys are safer plays. I like going a little heavier on Kyle Busch and Kevin Harvick. Uh, we'll have to see where they qualify. Obviously, if they qualify kind of on the front row or whatever, um, not as good plays as if they qualify maybe mid-pack. I'd like them a lot more if they qualify mid-pack. They'll drop to the back. And then as the carnage happened, they'll be able to get some place differential points. But, uh, you know, it, 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 the other thing about these drivers, like I said, starting that further forward, though, is you're going to want them to dominate. And given their price tags, um, we really probably aren't worrying about price tags this weekend. But, but in case there are some lineups where you're kind of pushing the salary cap, they do become a little bit less, uh, less good of, of a play because, you know, they are not going to be picking up lap sled points unless they're probably starting in the first couple rows. Then I can see them pushing for the lead just to kind of stay out front because staying out front is almost just as safe as riding way in the back and avoiding the carnage. So uh, you're either going to see these guys lead a lot of laps or ride way in the back. Uh, and that'll kind of make them safer players, but I, I don't think they have as much upside either if they're going to be riding in the back and not leading laps. Okay. Uh, after those two guys, there's a tier of seven drivers separated by only 38 points uh everyone except for Elliot Harvick Bush and then Bowman uh how are all of those guys those seven uh drivers how are they approaching the race on Sunday um yeah they're they're kind of just uh they're racing like normal I think it's gonna be a normal Talladega race for most of these guys um you know none of these guys has to win in this tier uh, Kyle Larson, even though he's 12 points back of the cut, he does not have to win. He's only 12 points back. You can make that up in two races very easily. So these guys race Talladega as normal. Uh, I don't see any reason to play any of these drivers a little bit differently uh, than you would any other Talladega or other restrictor plate race. Okay, finally, Alex Bowman. He is 34 points behind the cutoff. How is he approaching this? I mean, he's got to win. He has no chance to win next weekend at Kansas, um, pretty much. Uh, you know, obviously the the Fords and, the, and even the Toyotas are much more favored to win at Kansas and maybe somebody like Kyle Larson in a Chevy. So Bowman, you're pretty much banking on a win this weekend. So he's going to go for the win. He's going to be aggressive. He's a boomer bust play. Really interesting GPP play. Also has a higher DNF potential because of that. Um, so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how Alex Bowman plays out. He and Chase Elliott are almost approaching this similar. Uh, the main difference is in the stage points. Uh, you know, Alex Bowman isn't looking to win stages. It will help in the points, obviously, if he's trying to win stages. So he will be racing, but he won't be pushing for a stage win as much as he'll be pushing just to kind of finish high up in the stage standings. So you're going to see him being pretty racy throughout the whole race. Increases his DNF potential significantly 
but it also probably increases his win potential a little bit in the times he does not DNF. So uh, another boomer bust play like Chase Elliott. Okay, let's talk about the model. What factors go into the Talladega model and how predictive is it? Um, Factors that go in the model, year-to-date driver rating, um, both at overall and then uh, in the last half of the season. Um, So drivers that have kind of improved over the second half of the season do actually show a little bit of improvement uh, in in the restrictor plate races, you know, at at the the last Talladega race. Um, Then also you want to look at dominance at restrictor plates. And when I say dominance, I'm really talking about laps led. You don't want to really care about fastest laps. Those are so random. But like I said, laps led are a little bit predictive. Uh, They're also predictive of finishing positions. So you're mostly just looking at year-to-date performance uh, and then track type driver rating. So restrictor plate driver rating and restrictor plate dominance. Um, and, And those are the factors that go into the model this weekend. Not very predictive because of the crazy randomness, the R squared of this model is right around 0. 0.1011, uh, 0. <laughs> 0.105, right? So not very predictive. Daytona is closer to 0. 0.115, Talladega 0. 0.10105 in that neighborhood. But uh, yeah, you, you're really not explaining a whole lot of the finishing position. And really mostly what you're explaining is these back markers that aren't going to push forward and contend for a win. That's really most of what you're explaining. Interesting. Uh, what is the overall incident rate at Talladega or a, just a, a plate race in general? Uh, it is quite high. So I'm going to, again, I'm going to remove the Daytona 500 just because um, it, it, <laughs> Daytona 500 is very aggressive. Uh, but overall, the incident rate in the eight races we've had where we've had 40 drivers uh, is 42%. So nearly half the field. Uh, if we if we want to kind of just trim this down to the, the last Talladega race, um, the, the incident rate is give me one second here it is 37 and a half percent so a little bit lower but i wouldn't say it's statistically significantly different because of the relatively small sample size so um you know i would say at least a third of the field is expected on average and even sometimes up to 50 percent of the field so you know if you're talking a third of the field you're talking 13 ish cars all the way up to maybe 20 cars is probably the range of outcomes we can expect uh maybe you know, there's a little bit on the outsides of that range, uh, a little bit less than 13 has a small probability of happening and a little bit more than 20 has a small probability of happening. But I'd expect on average somewhere in that 30 to 20 uh, range in terms of number of major incidents uh, of the total number of cars. Okay, so uh, given all of the randomness, uh, I imagine, well, one, you, you probably aren't going to be doing much prop betting, if any, on this. I, I don't think I'm going to, um, just because I, I don't even know how I would go about doing that uh, yeah. without a, a reliable model. But uh, so for prop betting, I think that's how. But then uh, for GPPs, it seems like you really want to embrace the randomness. But um, what are some of the GPP tips you have for the race? Yeah, actually, let's let's break this up into two parts first. Let's let's focus on GPPs, and then actually, we should talk about the betting not only uh, for this weekend but also last week because that was pretty cool. But um, yeah, so as far as GPP strategy, uh, you definitely want to play ownership percentages here. Um, obviously, if a driver is going to be super high owned, and there's a chance that there's you know a fifty percent incident rate or even a thirty three percent incident rate, and a driver is going to be fifty sixty percent owned, something like that, which no driver should ever be at Talladega. Uh, you can definitely go underweight on that driver. So I'm definitely going to be leveraging ownership percentages, especially within like tiers of drivers, both within starting position and in uh, maybe quality. Uh, if within a starting position group, 
I might actually play the less quality drivers more than the, the better quality drivers, uh, just because the better quality drivers can be higher owned and the less quality drivers can be lower owned. But uh, there isn't as vast a difference in terms of expected outcomes. So it's a lot easier, like we always say, to predict the market than to predict the race. And this is especially true for Talladega. Uh, much easier to predict ownership percentage. It's not easy to predict ownership percentage. The, the ownership model is not going to be as accurate as most weeks, uh, just because that's how it is with plate racing. But we can predict uh, ownership percentage more accurately than the race, right? If the R squared of the ownership percentage model is around 0.4, it's still four times more uh, variability explained than 0.1. So, um, you know, it's, it's much easier to predict the market. So definitely leverage ownership percentage. You do not have to max out salary. You don't even have to get close. There was one year, uh, I think it was 2015 where, 14 or 15 where you know guys like JJ Yelly and Josh Wise ended up in the winning lineup and I think uh salary was like 39,100 or something at Talladega that ended up in the winning lineup so you can leave 10k on the table if you want um more likely it's going to be in that uh leave one to 6k range on the table but uh you can definitely leave more than 6k you can leave less than 1k salary really isn't a concern uh, another strategy stacking teammates stacking the Penske drivers stacking Fords uh, you know, stacking Chevys. These are all valid strategies. Um, if you have a situation that I, I think could get kind of interesting is if you have both Alex Bowman and Chase Elliott around at the end, well, uh, the question is, does Chase Elliott let Alex Bowman win? Obviously, Chase Elliott wants those playoff points, but there's kind of two good things that happen if you let Alex Bowman win. A, you're taking away playoff points from all those other drivers that'll make it to the next round. B, you're putting in Alex Bowman, who's far less likely to advance to the final four. So, uh, you could stack maybe something like Chase Elliott and Alex Bowman, depending on where they qualify. Um, that's a really risky strategy, but I think it could have some rewards as well. But yeah, stacking teammates, leaving salary on the table. These are all common things we talk about at restrictor plate races, but I know I'm going to get questions around these. And uh, so I'm just trying to kind of answer those questions. Uh, and then, of course, finally, uh, one last strategy is, is um, to kind of just not play as many of these drivers starting way in the back. I think they go... Uh, they don't go over-owned, but, but they could go over-owned because everybody knows, you know, play drivers in the back. So uh, to not play the super back markers, or if you do, uh, pick and choose one or two and, and just kind of hope to get lucky with them that maybe they're the ones that avoid carnage. So a uh, bunch of different strategies, but overall, um, you know, you kind of just want to play the ownership percentage game. One thing I will say, uh, I will have air quote GTO uh, ownership percentages. It's going to be based off of uh, the, the 40 driver fields. So these eight races, and it's just going to be kind of a historic GTO ownership percentage for every starting position. So this is purely going to be starting position based. It's not going to be taking drivers into account. So obviously if there's a driver that's much more likely to have a good race than another driver starting in, in the you know 25th position, if it's, if somehow, you know, um, I don't know, let's just say Greg Alding starts 25th versus uh, Kyle Busch starting 25th then the GTO doesn't apply exactly, but you can say, okay, well, you know, Greg Alding is the GTO ownership for this, you know, third or 25th place starting position is around 25% or whatever. Maybe we play Kyle Busch 35%, uh, kind of pushing the upper limits there or 40%. And maybe we play Greg Alding somewhere around 5% or something like that would be optimal for these drivers. So you have to still take into account the driver, the situation and all of that. But um, just based off starting position, we can kind of come up with a historic 
optimal ownership percentage for every position in the field. So I will have that behind the road of his paywall again this week as well. So that's something you're definitely going to want to use if you're multi-entering. Uh, and also, even if you're not mass multi-earning, if you're playing five or 10 lineups, you can kind of still see where uh, the optimal ownership percentage is, where we can expect the higher owned drivers to be. And that way, you know where to zig when other people are, are zagging uh, or, you know, as they say, that's how it goes. Okay. Uh, you'd also mentioned potentially talking about prop betting. Yeah. So <laughs> I think uh, as far as prop bets go for, for Talladega and for restrictor plate racing in general, um, I mostly you're just kind of betting long shots to win uh, is the strategy. So right. I bet Eric Almarola 60 to one to win Daytona this year, the 500. And uh, he was leading in the last lap before he got dumped going into the final set of turns. But uh, yeah, mostly you're looking at, at kind of betting, betting drivers that you know have longer odds to win um you can maybe squeeze out a couple interesting prop bets as far as head-to-heads uh also the group bet props are, are pretty uh lucrative so you're more looking at longer odds things right picks to win and also group bets so usually there will be groups of four drivers uh and you can find some lucrative odds on these groups of four drivers uh so that's kind of where i'll be looking at for the prop bets this weekend um certainly i think We'll, we'll have to see where lines end up. But I, I grabbed Alex Bowman early this week at 25 to 1 uh, just because I really like the fact that all he cares about is winning. Uh, and he has dominated at restricted plate races before, as we mentioned earlier in the show. So uh, if we, again, if we sort by um, dominator points here, where was it that Alex Bowman dominated? Uh, give me one second. Got Alex Bowman at Talladega in 2018. So the first Talladega race this year, he led 26 laps. So um, I definitely liked Bowman when I grabbed him early in the week. We'll have to see where he ends up later in the week. Um, but uh, yeah, well, that's what I think about betting, you know, plate races is mostly you're just going for longer odds and then uh, group bets. You're less looking at these head to heads because so hard to predict them. If you get some crazy line on a head to head, you know, like a plus 130 or something like that. You almost want to, you right. almost want to just snap those up automatically, but uh, given a 40% incident rate ballpark. Right. So, uh, but that's pretty much what you're doing. As far as last weekend goes, um, I was uh, basically hundred percent on my prop bets. The only one I missed was a, a group bet. Daniel Suarez did not win his group, but he was plus 275 or plus 300 and he almost won his group. But uh, yeah, Dover, really good. All three of my head-to-head bets were um, positive in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of um, uh, the the betting line. It's like plus 130, plus 160, whatever. So, uh, and then also the one I maxed out one. And I got the Denny Hamlin group win bet at plus 305. So, great betting weekend. And all of that, again, is thanks to the Road of His model and the Sim scores. Okay. Uh, there has been no on-track activity for the Cup Series so far. Uh, a little bit of an unusual schedule for Talladega. So how does that impact the content schedule for the weekend? Um, so it doesn't impact it too greatly. Um, obviously, with, with no practice yet, we don't have anything to talk about as far as, as drivers. But practice also doesn't go into the model. So uh, we really don't, <laughs> we don't care that there's been no tra- on-track activity so far today. Um, tomorrow there is practice for an hour and 20 minutes uh, from 11.05 to 12.25 Eastern. Whoops. And then uh, I was checking the NASCAR schedule there and I've got a pop-up. But, uh, and then also for, uh, qualifying is at 4.30 Eastern. So that's 1.30 Pacific. That'll be approximately an hour or so. 
uh, maybe a little more than an hour because it's a big plate race. But uh, once qualifying is over around 5.30 to 6, I'll start to get to, to work on the article. Uh, we will, like I said, have the GTO ownership percentage in that article. I'll have some extra stats and some nuggets around starting position and ending up the winning lineup. Uh, so it'll be a bit of more of a detailed article this weekend. So you'll definitely want to check that out uh, just because uh, I think there's been a little bit of misconception around plate racing. You just stack drivers in the back. That's not quite how it goes. Um, so I'm going to have definitely some nuggets in there uh, in the article as well, not just picks, but uh, we'll also have picks. We'll also have some strategy talk in the article. And then of course we'll get the apps updated and I will do Rotoviz Live that night, so that evening. Um, time to be determined, but probably shortly after I finish updating everything, uh, we'll have Rotoviz Live. And uh, yeah, then Sunday is just Saturday after that, and Sunday morning is just lineup building. And uh, you know, I'm going to be max entering, so I've got 150 lineups to do. I'll probably be doing them all by hand. So, so I want to get everything done on Saturday. Right. So I can do 150 by hand lineups. Well, good luck with that. That is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On The Daily. For Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt F. The Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On The Daily, the Rotoviz Daily fantasy sports podcast powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.